Welcome to The Word for Today, featuring the Bible teaching of Pastor Chuck Smith, founder of the Calvary Chapel Movement. This in-depth one-hour radio broadcast features a verse-by-verse study through the entire Bible, as originally taught by Pastor Chuck. Our study today picks up in the book of Acts, chapter 4, verse 1, as we follow along with today's lesson. Acts chapter 4. Now, this portion of the book of Acts is just a continuous story. And one chapter actually flows into another. So, the fourth chapter, it begins with the words, as they spake unto the people. And uh, so, you have to know the background what people they were speaking to and who was speaking. You see, just starting at chapter 4, it leaves you, and they spake to the people. Who spoke to who? And so going back to chapter 3, and uh, it's been a a few weeks, uh, so going back to chapter 3, we find that Peter and John were going into the temple at the afternoon hour of prayer, which is 3 o'clock in the afternoon. As they were entering through what was known as the beautiful gate of the temple, there was a man there who regularly had his post there. He was a beggar. He was lame. And he sought alms from Peter and John. So Peter said, look at us. And he turned, no doubt holding out his hand, expecting to get a shekel. And Peter said, We don't have silver or gold, but what we do have we'll give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise to your feet and walk. He took the man by the right hand, lifted him to his feet, and immediately he was healed. He received strength. And he began to walk and he began to jump up and down. As the people standing around saw this, And as they saw this man walking into the temple with Peter and John, jumping up and down, no doubt squealing too with excitement, (laughs) drawing attention, they said, isn't this the lame man who's been lying there at the gate all these years? Said, sure looks like him. How is it that he's walking? Let's find out. And so a crowd of people gathered on that portion of the temple that was called Solomon's Porch, a very large area. And they began to look at Peter and John with a sense of awe, worship, reverence. And when Peter observed how that they were looking at him, he said, ye men of Israel, Why do you marvel at this? And why do you look on us as though we through our own righteousness have done this good deed to this lame man? And he began to preach to them the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is through faith in him that this man has been made whole. And he again spoke of the death of Christ And of his resurrection. And so. 
he mentions that the things which God had before showed by the prophets that the Messiah would suffer, Jesus fulfilled those prophecies. So he called on them to repent and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out and that you might receive these times of blessings from the Father. And Jesus is going to return according to all of the promises. And so while he was speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. The high priest and the house of the priest were Sadducees. It was a religious sect of the Jews that did not believe in resurrection. They did not believe in spirits. They did not believe in angels. They were the materialist of their day. There was a constant religious argument going on between the sect of the Pharisees and the sect of the Sadducees. But the Sadducees, being materialists, didn't believe in life after death, didn't believe in resurrection. This life is all you get. And so they went for all they could get. Uh, the house of Caiaphas, the high priest, had a little booths set up in the outer courts of the temple where they sold uh, certified sacrifices, approved sacrifices. They had tables where they would exchange the people's Roman coinage for the temple's shekel that they might give to God. But it was a tidy little business. They were raking a huge profit and had become extremely rich. But their main thing was there is no resurrection. There is no spirit. There are no angels. And when Peter and John were preaching the resurrection and more or less proving through the miracle of this man who was lame, now walking, used that as the platform for sharing the fact that Jesus was risen from the dead. They came upon them and they were grieved, upset that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Really angry over this. And so they arrested them and put them in prison until the next day because it was now eventide. So these events happened between three o'clock in the afternoon and the evening. Uh, the miracle, the preaching of Peter, and now the arrest of Peter and John and the lame man. Howbeit, many of those which heard the word believed the number of men was about 5,000. Interesting, in those days when they took a census, they only counted men. Women didn't count. So uh, 
They would never count women. So there are about 5,000 men. Notice when Jesus fed the multitude, it only told you the number of men that were fed. Uh, They just didn't count women. And it came to pass on the next day or in the morning that the rulers and the elders and the scribes, now they got everybody. Uh, This includes the the Pharisees also. This is the whole religious council, the Sanhedrin, the rulers, the elders, the scribes, along with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John and Alexander. Just who John and Alexander were, we don't know. And as many as were of the family of the high priest, they were gathered together together at this tribunal there in Jerusalem. And when they had set Peter and John and the lame man in the midst of them, they asked, by what power or by what name have you done this? Deuteronomy chapter 13 speaks about if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams comes and If he says something that comes to pass or if he works a wonder among you, if that prophet or dreamer of dreams leads you to worship any other God, he's to be put to death. This question was designed for self-incrimination that they might be able to pronounce upon them a sentence of death. By what name? By what power? Have you done this? Then Peter filled with the Holy Ghost. Now, in our last lesson in Acts chapter 3, we were looking at the traits and characteristics of the men that God used. And the purpose being that all of us desire to be used of God. We realize that we have only one life. It'll soon be passed. Only what we do for Christ is going to last. So we want to serve God. We want to do something lasting and worthwhile for God. And so we were looking at the characteristics of the men that God used. We saw that they were men of prayer. We saw that they were men of faith. We saw that they were men of the word. And now we see another characteristic. They are men who are filled with the Holy Spirit. Then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus said to his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You will be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth power of the Holy Spirit upon them, they are now going to bear witness of Jesus Christ, just as Jesus said. Now, this isn't natural for Peter. This assembly of the high muckety-mucks of the religious world intimidated Peter before he was filled with the Holy Spirit. It was outside of this council of men when Jesus was being tried by them, that Peter denied his Lord three times, so intimidated was he by these religious leaders. 
Now he's not standing outside. He's standing in the middle of them. And his life is on the line. And they've asked the question, by what power, by what name did you make this man walk? So Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, what a difference the filling of the Holy Spirit makes in our lives. Transforms us, empowers us. And he said unto them, you rulers of the people, elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to this lame man, by what means he is made whole, and, and in that, Peter is just sort of showing how ridiculous it is to arrest us just because a lame man is able to walk. I mean, that's pretty lame. <laughs> it, it's because a good deed done to a lame man that here he is on trial been arrested, been put in jail overnight because of this. And it, and it shows how really absurd the whole situation is. But then Peter went on to say, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel. I want the message not only to go to you, but to everybody. That by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who you crucified, whom God hath raised from the dead, even by him does this man stand here before you whole. You want to know by what name, by what power? It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. Again, as we pointed out earlier, as we've been coming through Acts, the resurrection of Jesus Christ was the central message of the early church. Every time they preached, the subject was the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The fact that Jesus is alive. Probably it would be well to have little open tombs that we used for necklaces rather than crosses. <laughs> He's risen. That's the message of the church. Yes, he was crucified, but he is risen. The message of the risen Lord. Even by him, does this man stand here before you whole? And referring to Jesus, he goes back to the psalm. This, he said, is the stone which was set at naught of you builders. They were the religious leaders. They were the builders of the religious community, which has become the head of the corner. And neither is there salvation in any other 
For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. The exclusive claims concerning Jesus Christ. It is only by him that we can be saved. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. Jesus said, I am the door to the sheepfold. Anyone who tries to come in any other way is as a thief and a robber. And so Peter is saying, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given to man whereby we must be saved. In quoting Psalm 118 and recognizing that it was a reference to Jesus, It is then interesting to go back and to read the context of this prophecy concerning the Messiah in Psalm 118. Uh, And I would recommend that you do that just as a background to this particular prophecy. There is a story, an interesting story, concerning the building of Solomon's temple. As you remember in the scriptures, the stones were all quarried off site and were brought to the site of the temple and they were carved in such a way that they interlocked and they didn't use any mortar. So in the building of the temple, there was no sound of hammer or trowel uh, because uh, the, the stones were quarried Uh, elsewhere and brought and then laid in place. Now, when we built the youth camp, we built it out of logs and we ordered the logs from Missouri and back there at that mill in Missouri, they had the plans for our buildings and they cut all of the logs back there notched them and shaped them and then they numbered them and when they sent them out to us they were in piles on the end of it was a number and by the number we knew exactly where the log fit into the buildings and so it it was an interesting thing you have your plans there and and you get the log that's uh, 12 and 2 you know and 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 you you know where that goes in the building. And so we put the the buildings together with logs that were milled and cut elsewhere. And uh, ours was just to get them stacked and uh, get the bars through and so forth. And uh, an interesting thing. Well, that's much the way Solomon's temple was built, only not with logs, but with stones. Uh, They were quarried and brought to the site and all labeled where they fit in and so forth so that the uh, builders had the plans of the architect and the numbers on the stones and they knew just where they went in the wall. But the story goes that a stone came which they didn't have any markings on it. They didn't know where the thing went. And so... They thought, well, they've made a mistake at the quarry and they've sent this stone and it doesn't seem to fit anywhere. So they cast it aside. 
And over the time, the years of the building of the temple, the weeds grew up and all covered the stone. So that when the temple was complete, all they needed was the chief cornerstone. So as the story goes, they sent the message to the quarry that you, you haven't sent the chief cornerstone yet. And the quarry said, yes, it's on our records, it's been sent. And, and so there was this big dispute over it until finally someone came across this stone in the bushes and they realized that the stone that the builders had rejected was actually the chief cornerstone of the building. Now, there is this prophecy concerning Jesus. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the work of God. It is marvelous, the psalmist said in our eyes. So Peter is using this concerning Jesus. You're the foolish builders. And you have set aside the chief cornerstone. But he's become the head of the corner. And neither is there salvation in any other. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and they perceived. Now, let me say that I believe that they had three false perceptions of Peter and John. First of all, they perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men. They marveled. I don't believe that they were unlearned and ignorant. I believe that Peter and John had a better working knowledge of their scriptures than they did. After all, they had had three years or more of private tutoring by Jesus. They were in a seminary that wouldn't quit. They were with him all day long, into the evening, listening to him teach and expound the scriptures and open up the scriptures like no one could. They had the author with them, teaching them, instructing them. And as you go through the book of Acts, again, hear Peter quoting from Psalm 118, but all the way through, every time Peter spoke, he was quoting their scriptures. When we get over into the sixth chapter, uh, we'll see how that Stephen was so conversant with the scriptures. Actually, the seventh chapter where uh, Stephen uh, begins to rehearse the scriptures for them and their history. They were far from unlearned and ignorant men. True, they didn't go to the University of Jerusalem but like someone said, when you don't have an education, you've got to use your brains. So they were far from ignorant. Secondly, it says, they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. It was a misperception misperce to think that their relationship with Christ was past tense. They were with Jesus. 
He said, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst. They just didn't see Jesus, but he was standing right there with them. I wonder if the world takes knowledge of the fact that you've been with Jesus. How wonderful it is to be with Jesus. But it wasn't past tense. It was a present experience. They were with Jesus. Now they had a dilemma because they were beholding the man which was healed, standing with them, And so they couldn't say anything against it. I mean, how can you say anything against it? He's standing there. You can't say, well, he's still lame. He's standing there. So they could say nothing against it. I think that probably one of the greatest needs in the church is the witness of lame men who are standing whole. And I speak of that in a spiritual sense. I think the thing that has caused so many people to be drawn to Calvary Chapel is that God has made so many lame people whole. People whose lives were so totally messed up people whom the world had written off. But to see them now whole, see them out ministering, seeing them pastoring some of the largest churches in the United States, hard to say anything against it. When you have a child who had destroyed his life in drugs, really spaced out when the psychiatrists say there's no hope they'll never be sane you might as well just forget that he's your son and when you sit in the congregation and you see him ministering to thousands of people what can you say against it you can't say anything you just have to rejoice what God has done I received the, the most precious letter from Mike McIntosh's mother of rejoicing of what God did in Mike's life here at Calvary Chapel, the transformation and all, and her thanking us for the part that we had in seeing Mike healed and transformed. And and, and what can you say against it? So when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they had a conference among themselves and they spoke of their dilemma. What are we going to do with these men? For a notable miracle has been done by them Everybody in Jerusalem knows about it. We can't deny it. But that it spread no further among the people. Let's sternly threaten them that they speak henceforth no more in this name. 
So that's the third mistake that they made, thinking that they could quiet them by a strong warning and rebuke. You can't quiet men who are filled with the Spirit and walking with Jesus Christ. There's no way to silence them. And to think that they could silence them with threats, they were making a big mistake. They did not perceive the truth about these men. So they called them in, and they commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to hearken to you more than to God, judge ye. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. In other words, they say we don't have any intention of obeying your command. You cannot silence us with your threat. We must listen to God. Now, in a sense, this was civil disobedience because they felt that the laws of God were superior to the laws of men. You've told us not to speak. God has told us to speak. Now, whether it's right for us to listen to you or listen to God, you might have your own judgment, but as for us, we have no intention of listening to you more than to God. We cannot but speak the things which we in our We can't be quiet about this. You remember the prophet Jeremiah God told him to go down and speak. And the people became angry and incensed and he was arrested, thrown into the dungeon. And he was discouraged and upset. Here I am obeying God and look what happened to me. Down in this miserable dungeon. It's cold, it's damp, it's dark, I hate it. That's the last time I'm speaking for God. You know, that's the way he allows his servants to be treated. Forget it. I'm not going to speak anymore in his name. But then Jeremiah said, his word was like fire in my bones and I became weary of trying to hold back. Now that's basically, we, we, it's in our bones, man. We got to. You know, we, we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go because they didn't find anything how they might punish them. And also because of the people, for all men glorify God for that which was done. Now watch that closely. All men glorify God for that which was done. They began with an attempt to glorify Peter. When the miracle first happened, they were looking at Peter. But Peter diverted their attention from himself and pointed them to Jesus. The men that God uses are men who do not take glory to themselves, but will point men to Jesus. The net result is the people were now glorifying God for what was done. And Jesus said, 
let your light so shine before men that when they see your good works, they glorify your Father which is in heaven. And when people begin to glorify God for the work that is happening, then you know you're doing it in the right way. If they come up and begin to pat you on the shoulder and tell you how wonderful you are, then something's wrong. Look at yourself. Uh, you know, you're standing in the you know, wrong place. So they glorified God. For the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing was showed. So when they were let go, they went to their own company from a hostile environment into a friendly environment. And they reported all that the chief priest and the elders had said. They reported all the threats. Man, they're going to throw us in jail and they're going to do this and that, you know, if we dare to speak anymore in the name of Jesus. And so when they heard the report of the threats and all that were made, the uh, the magistrates and uh, the orders that were given, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord. I think that here again we have an important key in our struggle with the worldly powers that oftentimes are antagonistic towards righteous causes. It didn't say that they all got together and painted signs and went down and protested in front of the temple. But they went to God. They took it to prayer. And I think that when we see injustices in our world, that we can actually do much more through prayer than we can through public kind of demonstrations. So I am not really one to picket, to carry signs. If you want to get together and pray about it, hey, I'm here, I'm ready. But uh, I hesitate towards some of the uh, militant types of uh, operations that uh, go on. Much better that we just pray. They prayed. It was definitely wrong that the threats that were made to them, they were definitely wrong. So they're praying about it. And their prayer, I think, is a great model for prayer. First of all, the address. Notice who they addressed their prayer to. Lord, thou art God, which made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is. What a great address. And when you just put that address on the prayer, the battle's already over. Who am I asking for help from? The Lord 
who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything that's in them. I mean, that puts things in perspective. My problems that were looming so great that I really couldn't see beyond them. I was being buried by them. They were overwhelming. But I'm coming to the God who created the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything that is in them. Yes, it's too much for me, but hey, it's not even the move of a little finger for him. And so you begin to get the things in perspective when you realize the one that we are calling upon for aid. When Jeremiah was discouraged because it seemed overwhelming, he said, Jeremiah, I am God. Is there anything too hard for me? See it in perspective. And that happens when you put the right address on the prayer. Suddenly things are in perspective. Who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Messiah. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom you have appointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together. Lord, you knew all about this over a thousand years ago. This isn't a surprise to you. This hasn't caught you off guard. You know all about the circumstances. You've known all about these circumstances. A thousand years ago, you wrote about them. And they're now happening. So you realize that God is in control. He's in control of the circumstances that I'm going through. He knew all about them before I was ever born. He's not caught by surprise. He's not taken off guard. God spoke about this a thousand years ago through David. So the recognition that God is in control. He knows what's going on in the situations in our lives. And what comfort that brings to realize God knows, God understands. And so they were gathered together to do whatsoever thy hand and counsel determined before to be done. Lord, this is coming right down according to your plan. That which you determine in counsel, they did. They gathered together against your Messiah just like you said they would. These men had that awareness of God's sovereignty and that they did not look at the cross as some out-of-control experience, but as something that God had ordained and had determined and planned. And now, Lord, interesting. You see, they didn't just rush in with their petition. They, They took time first of all, to worship. I think that prayer should always begin with worship, just a time of quietness before the Lord, recognizing 
the greatness of God, the one that we're coming to for help and for aid. And, and to realize God's got it all in control. He knows what's going on. And that, that just gives me the strength. And then to bring God the petition. Now, Lord, behold their threatenings and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. <laughs> Lord, help us to do the things that they threaten us not to do. <laughs> Give us the boldness, Lord, in the face of these threats to speak thy word by stretching forth your hand to heal. Continue, Lord, to give evidence to the word. Stretch forth your hand and heal. Lord, perform more wonders and signs before them, showing that Jesus is alive, is risen from the dead. That signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child, Jesus. When they had prayed... The place was shaken where they were assembled together and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. So it was a powerful prayer. The place was shaken and God answered and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Now we get a little insight on the early church. The multitude of them that believed were of one heart and one soul. There was just they were bound together. There was the koinonia, that beautiful fellowship. Their hearts were bound together. Neither said any of them that the things which they possess, that they possessed was their own, but they shared all things. There was a common sharing of the uh, wealth of the church. And with great power, gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Again, the resurrection, the heart of the message of the early church. And with great power, that is with signs, and great grace was upon them all. Oh, what great combination. Great power and great grace. And neither was there any among them which lacked. This was having all things in common. Uh, for many of them that possessed lands and houses sold them. They brought the prices of things that, that were sold and they laid them down at the apostles' feet. And the church began to distribute among all of them according to their needs. And so there was uh, the common sharing of their wealth. And a fellow by the name of Joseph, who they began to call Barnabas, which means son of comfort or son of consolation. He was a Levite of the tribe of Levi and he was from Cyprus. He had some land and he sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, this just gives us an introduction to Barnabas. We will meet him later. When Paul the apostle is converted and when he comes back to Jerusalem, the church fathers are leery of his conversion. They don't know if he is, belongs to the Mossad or uh, what, and they're leery of him. And they're really not cordial and accepting of him. So he left and 
went home to Tarsus, which is now in Turkey. And there he just was living a quiet life, making tents. But when a Gentile church began to develop in Antioch, Barnabas realized that Saul would be a great one to minister to these Gentiles because he had a good understanding of the Gentile culture having grown up in Antioch, uh, having grown up in Tarsus. So he went to Tarsus to find Paul and he brought him back to help minister to the church in Antioch. And then later, when the Holy Spirit spoke to those in the church in Antioch and said, separate Paul and Barnabas for the ministry where I've called them. They fasted and prayed, and then they laid hands on Paul and Barnabas, and the Spirit sent them forth. And they went, first of all, to Cyprus, the first missionary journey. The first stop was Cyprus, which was not foreign at all to Barnabas because that's where he came from the island of Cyprus. So that's the first stop on their missionary journey. Then they went over to the area that was familiar to Paul, over into the area which is present-day Turkey in that first missionary journey. So this just gives us a brief introduction to Barnabas. Uh, and he well-named by the disciples, son of consolation, because he was bringing parties together. He, he was being used to uh, bring Paul to the apostles in Jerusalem and, and to breach uh, that fear that had separated, caused them to separate themselves from Paul. It is interesting that later on, Paul and Barnabas had their differences. And as we move further into the book of Acts, we'll look at the differences that came between this son of consolation who was always putting people together and Paul who became separated over the dissension that rose between them. Now, here again, we have a mention of their selling of their goods and having a common uh, treasury for the distribution of all of the funds. Uh, nowhere do we find where God commanded this. This was something that was probably done spontaneously and uh, it sort of caught on so that many of them began to do it. But nowhere was it commanded or required that they do this. But there is often a sort of follow the leader kind of thing that happens. And it is quite possible that it was just people being caught up in the emotion of things, did this out of emotion rather than directed by the Spirit in doing it. Because, as I said, these chapters are really connected. As we move into the next chapter, we find that some problems developed as the result of this practice and later on, further problems will develop. One of the first church councils had to deal with the problem of the distribution of 
the church's welfare program. And later on, they were broke and in terrible financial straits. Communism just doesn't work. And this was an experiment and with the right motives and all, but still it just didn't work. And uh, like the present day communism in Russia, they uh, ran into financial woes uh, in their endeavor for this experiment. You see, you got to keep getting new ones in. <laughs> and uh, it's sort of a Ponzi or pyramid kind of a scheme. And you, you, when you run out at the base, man, it's all over. Uh, so that uh, Paul ended up going to the Gentile churches to collect offerings for the poor brethren in Jerusalem. So uh, we'll look at this more fully next week as we see the problems that began to develop in the church over this early attempt at uh, communal living. Let's turn now in our Bibles to Acts chapter 5 as we continue our journey through the Bible. Now, we saw that in the early church, there was tremendous enthusiasm, and sometimes enthusiasm can get misdirected. Paul said, I testify concerning the Jews that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. It's good to be zealously affected in a good thing. And in the early church, because of their excitement and their zeal, and because they were expecting the Lord to return at any time, they, as they would come into the fellowship, would sell everything, bring the money and lay it at the apostles' feet, And so there was sort of a community that was formed so that everyone received them from the church according to their needs. And it was a form of communism that they sought to practice in the early church. There is no indication that God directed it. It would seem that it was something that just grew out of the enthusiasm because of how God was working and the mighty things that were being done. Everyone was excited, and it was not something that was required. It was something that was just freely done by the people in their zeal and excitement for God. And as I said, possibly because they were expecting the Lord to return any time. We're not going to need it anyhow, and so, you know, let's just pool everything. But there were problems that developed from this. And in chapter 5, we come now across the first problem. In the fourth chapter, the end of the chapter, it uh, tells how that no one lacked anything. For those that possessed lands or houses, they sold them and they brought the prices, uh, the things that were sold, laid them at the apostles' feet and distribution was made to every man according to his need. And then it tells us about Barnabas, uh, how he sold his land and brought the money in. We'll return with more of our in-depth study in the book of Acts in our next broadcast. 
as Pastor Chuck focuses his attention on hypocrisy. And we do hope you'll make plans to join us. But right now, I'd like to remind you that if you'd like to order a copy of today's message, simply order Acts 4 through 5 when visiting the wordfortoday.org. And while you're there, we encourage you to browse the many additional biblical resources by Pastor Chuck. You can also subscribe to the Word for Today podcast or sign up for our email subscription. Once again, all this can be found at thewordfortoday.org. If you'd like to call, our toll-free number is 1-800-272-WORD. And our office hours are Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific Time. Again, that's 1-800-272-9673. If you prefer to write, our mailing address is The Word for Today, P.O. Box 8000, Costa Mesa, California, 92628. And now, on behalf of The Word for Today, we'd like to thank all of you who share in supporting this ministry with your prayers and financial support. And be sure and join us again next time as Pastor Chuck continues his verse-by-verse study through the Bible. That's right here on the next edition of The Word for Today. And now, once again, here's Pastor Chuck. The prophet said to King Asa, For the eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the entire earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are in harmony with his. I pray that your heart might this week be in harmony with his, that God might be able to show himself strong on your behalf and accomplish his purposes through your life. The witness of his love to a sinful world. And the provisions that he has made for their salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. So may it be a blessed week and may the Lord give you many opportunities to share your faith and your love for Jesus Christ with the needy world in which we live. This program has been sponsored by Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, California. Gather the kids together because the Word for Today would like to present a kid's book by Pastor Chuck called The Story of the Resurrection of Jesus. Each book contains an audio CD of Pastor Chuck reading this story, featuring the voice talents of Skip Heitzig. But I will come back again on the third day. Greg Laurie. It's Jesus! Hi, Peter. (whistles) Raul Reese. See, it's really Jesus. Yes. Cheryl Broderson. The stone was rolled away. The tomb is empty. And so many more. It's never too early to start reading to your children timeless biblical stories taught by Pastor Chuck. To order your copy, call the word for today at 800-272-WORD. Or to see a sneak preview, visit us online at thewordfortoday.org where you can order this book in print or as a digital download. Again, the number to call is 800-272-9673.